Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I'm blessed and honored to be in dialogue with Sprinza Goldberg. She has recently translated the following book by Rabbi Menachem Brod, In Search of Truth, Three Yeshiva Students on a Spiritual Journey, published by BSD Publishers 2022. Sprinza is a teacher at Beis Hamish High School for Girls in Toronto. Sprinza, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you. The feeling is mutual. Thank you. Uh, to begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Um, where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your interest in this book? I grew up in the States, um, moved around a lot as a child, but I spent most of my childhood years in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I grew up in a Chabad Hasidic family, and when I finished high school, I went to Israel to study in a uh, Hasidic, Jew- like a Jewish religious school, um, a college in Israel. And actually, the, the the college there that I was at was actually like completely Israeli. So I was the only American, a thousand girls. Um, and it was actually there that I read the book in the original Hebrew form in the library there. And it made such an impression on me. And like I've read the book many, many times since. And on many occasions felt like I wished that the ideas in the book could be shared with my friends, you know, back home or acquaintances who um, only speak English, only read English. Um I would say maybe two or three years, maybe yeah, before COVID. So this is going back maybe you know six years. I started teaching, you know, my own time in the evenings. I started teaching a Tanya class. This is like you know a class on Hasid, um, Hasidic philosophy to a group of women from different backgrounds. And I just felt so many times that oh my goodness, if they these ladies could get their hands on this book and they could read it, it would just change. Like I feel like I would be able to come to class and the whole conversation would be different because they'd have this book. And I thought for sure someone would translate it because it's so, so special. But then when it wasn't happening, I just took the matter into my own hands and I contacted the author. And I said, this really, really has to be translated into English. And he actually agreed with me. He said, yes, but I've never found someone to do it. And from there, it just took off. What inspired you to translate this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers by translating this book into English? What message did the author hope to convey to readers? And how did you assist the author in bringing that message to a broader community of readers? So it's actually, um, there's a foreword in the beginning of the book, which is translated. It's actually also in the original. Um, When Rabbi Broad wrote this book originally, it was actually... Um, the book was not first a book. It was actually a serial in a publication called Kfar Chabad Magazine. Um, Rabbi Broad started out when he was pretty young, like as a very, very talented writer. He was writing 
because um, he was a yeshiva student, but he had the talent for writing. So he was writing articles for the magazine and the editors, the people who were in charge of the magazine felt that there was, you know, this explosion. A lot of people were learning Hasidic philosophy and there was just this lack of appreciation. People either not knowing what it was all about or people who had lived it all their lives and not appreciating the value, the real, like, you know, the treasure that they had. Um, and that maybe th th these concepts of Hasidic, these Hasidic ideas and values would better be appreciated and understood if they could be conveyed through a story. And Rabbi Broad wrote a serial. He wrote a serial every single week, another chapter would come out. And it was just, it, it was such a hit. Like everybody, everybody loved it. And um, he explains over there, actually in the foreword in the book, that before he did the serial, he interviewed many people who started out as completely like not involved in the Hasidic community, growing up in other segments of the Jewish community and how they came and changed their lives completely because of Hasidic ideas and values. And based on their life experiences, he invented these like fictional characters and wrote this story. And because the serial was so well received, um, he was really, he was really urged to, Rabbi Broad was urged to put it together as a book. And by then, like so much time had passed and he thought, you know, maybe I should change details to make it more reflective of the times or bring in different challenges, like new things that the community might be dealing with and bring it into the book. We decided to keep it in its original form. So it's really like a story from like you know, decades ago. Um, and, but the message is still just as relevant and true. And the idea is again, that, um, so many Hasidic ideas and values, which either remain too abstract or not appreciated um, for their relevance and their how just important they are to the Jewish way of life, um, you know, and through the story can be really appreciated. And I, I really feel that this has to be, I really felt that it had to be brought to the English audience um, for my students in high school, for my, for my adult students, for my Shabbos guests that would come to visit, I just, um, and you can try to speak in a logical way, but sometimes in a story, when you see fictional people who, um, you know, their emotions and the developments, you can get, really get um, into the story and feel more connected and impacted by it, I think. What are the primary themes in this book? What is the book's message to readers? So the main idea is that Hasidism is for every Jew. And that without it, um, Jewish life is almost flat. <laughs> like it doesn't, it doesn't, it's lacking such an important component. It's lacking um, life and passion and energy. Uh, one idea that was one chapter that explains very well how Torah, like Jewish thought is not static. Like it doesn't, right, there's the, there's the, it's revealed throughout the ages in different layers. So first, we were given the Jewish people were, was you know was given a Torah at Mount Sinai together with an oral law which remained oral, and eventually that oral law was written down, and eventually that oral law that was written down, which we call the Mishnah, was developed further into like discussions, which was written down as just Gemara, and then that was further developed, and then right the Halacha and it was codified and. Um, you know, if at any point the Jewish people would have said, oh, we we don't need this new layer of Torah that's been recorded or explained, like we can just go with the old. 
their Torah, their Jewish life would not endure. And Hasidic, Hasidic ideas and the whole the whole system of Hasidism is really another, it's just another step in the development of Torah. And if a Jewish person right now in this time, if a Jewish person denies the centrality, the importance, the you know, the primary nature of Hasidic, Hasidism, um, their Jewish way of life, their Torah knowledge is lack seriously lacking. Um, we're not talking about, you know, becoming Hasidic or changing a person's whole lifestyle. We're just talking about learning Torah in a certain way so that a person's service of God and their relationship with God can actually be as, you know, as fulfilling and productive and healthy as possible. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Um, I would hope that this message that Hasidism is really for every Jew and um, that, yeah, that Hasidism is for every single Jew and to allow that, like, I think, um, many people see Judaism as old or not applicable or, um, too abstract, or maybe it's just, you know, intellectual, but not emotional. And I feel that, um, allowing for the idea that maybe the Judaism that you thought with Judaism is actually meant to be coupled or it's like an integral part of it living now in 2023 needs to include a study of Hasidism so that Torah and God can be properly understood and appreciated and um, lived in a healthy way. What is the significance of the title in search of truth? What does this title mean in relation to the story? So um, the basic plot of the story um is is that there are three there are three yeshiva students um these three boys study in mainstream yeshiva in israel um, and they are not exposed to hasidism um neither like from the homes they were brought up nor in the schools that they are going to and each has their own um you know characteristics their own personality their own strengths and weaknesses um and through each of them they realize that the judaism that they're that they're following, that they're living is not the complete truth. Something is missing. And they each have their own journey because they're each, you know, individual, unique people. They have, they're searching for that truth. They're searching where, what is the true way to serve God, to live Torah life? And they each have their own way, that their own experiences that lead them to that place. But ultimately, it's through finding Hasidism. And even once they find it, because they're such unique people, obviously they're going to live it a little differently, but they realize that without it, they can't be living a true Judaism. Um, and it's about their journeys. It's about their search to get to that place. What assistance can this book offer to listeners if it is read as a self-help book? How can this book help its readers cope with psychological and spiritual problems? That's a really interesting question. So many ideas in Hasidism, um, I feel remain abstract sometimes or um, or just like, oh wow, what a fascinating idea and don't actually become practical. And um, the foundational work of all of um, Chabad, especially Chabad Hasidim, Hasidism, but Hasidism in general is called the Tanya, for readers are familiar with it. Um, it's interesting, the Tanya actually has five books. 
And the, the Hasidim say that just like the Torah that all Jews were given has five books, and based on that, all of the Torah is expounded. So too, the Tanya has five books, and all of Hasidus, all Hasidism is based on these five books. So um, it's like, you know, expounded out of these five books. Now, a lot of times a person could read the Tanya, and which is all about the Jewish psyche. That's really what it's about. It's about the inner the soul and how it works and what it does and how to nourish it properly and achieve real happiness, real growth, um, real satisfaction for a Jewish person. And um, that's what I think this book is so helpful for, because a person could read Tanya without a teacher or without real guidance and without real explanation and not see how it's so practical or not really understand like what's this going to change my life. And even though many people do see that, but it's possible not to. I see so many people who learn Tanya and they just say, oh, that's really inspiring. Like they don't actually make the change. But the story describes how Tanya changes these three boys' lives and they actually become different people from it. And um, a person could read this and say, oh, I see now how Tanya, how Hasidus can make me a more fulfilled person. I see how it could give me hope. I see how it could give me inner satisfaction and real joy in life. Um, and I think it would give a person um, the encouragement to learn more and, and to learn properly so that they can become truly happy and fulfilled. How can a non-Orthodox person benefit from this book, if at all? Um, very much so. So actually, uh, in my Tanya class that I was talking about, I, I teach Hasidism to a, a, you know, a group of women. Some of them are Orthodox and some of them are not Orthodox at all just, you know, intrigued, what is Hasidism? And they have been so impacted by the concepts in Tanya, um, in, in actually like, in actually in their relationship with God. Now, I very, very often felt that if they would have had this book, a lot of these ideas that so impact them could impact them even further, like really um, make the ideas not just an abstract conversation that's so inspiring, but really um, touch them in a deeper way. I think that, like I said in the beginning, the main idea of this book is that really Hasidism is for every single Jew. Doesn't matter if a person is practicing or not practicing, observant, religious, wherever they are, it's for every single Jew. And um, very often a person could pick up the Tanya, there are terms, there, you know, there's terminology, there's assumption of background knowledge, all kinds of things. And it could be scary for someone who's not familiar with those ideas to just jump right in. But the book is just so approachable. And I think it's a great starting point for somebody who does not have any exposure and doesn't know much to like gently um, introduce them to basic ideas in Hasidism and to show them that there's real value in that. How can a non-Jewish person benefit from this book, if at all? Yeah, that's a great, that's also a really interesting question. So um, my father actually, um, Dr. Shulman, started a website, asknoah.org, and he's dedicated his life to outreach to non-Jewish people. And his his outreach includes a lot, a lot of Hasidism, many, many Hasidic concepts um, that every non-Jew understanding about God, right? Right. We, we believe in the Torah that every human being you know, should 
believe and worship and worship God to understand who he really is. The ultimate way to do that is through Hasidism. Um, many ideas in this book are actually unique to Jewish people, right? The Jewish soul is very different from the non-Jewish soul, which is why we have different um, instructions from God for how to live. Because we have different purpose in the world. Um, so a lot of ideas here, I don't know if they were, you know, a non-Jew can't apply them person to themselves, but um, even just seeing how Hasidism can change um, and impact a person, even if that, just that concept could um, become, you know, non-Jew could become aware of that and realize, oh, there's something there for me too. And, and I would really strongly suggest that anybody who's listening to this, who isn't Jewish, to follow up and go to that um, website to see the kinds of information there um, that could really, really help them on their journey to stay searching for truth. <laughs> Can you share a brief outline of the plot of this story? What happens to whom? Why? How do the characters change and grow? Okay, so there are three main characters. Uh, the first character, which is the easiest to explain, his name is Eli Melech. He is the most, I would say, spiritually self-aware. And he's he's always like from a very from the very, very start, he's a, very aware that his spirituality, his relationship with God is very lacking. You know, he's following all the rules, he's learning the Torah, but emotionally there's not a connection and he's searching 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 so it's you know his search takes him to many different places but ultimately he joins a class for tanya and it completely changes his life um he chooses to actually visit a chabad chasidic yeshiva and to see how um this way of learning you know makes a person different and he ultimately himself becomes a Chabad Chassid, a follower of Chabad um, way of life. And his special emphasis, like he, because he's so spiritually sensitive and self-aware, he puts a lot of emphasis on prayer in his relationship with God, which is a very, something very unique also in Chabad philosophy is an emphasis on prayer as a way of connecting to God. Um, and then there's another, another, um, the second person is, Ben Sion. He is also a sensitive person, but very gregarious, like very, very outgoing and full of a lot of outgoing energy, right? So um, he he has a lot of inner questions that plague him, but he seems to, you know, he starts like he push he, he ends up pushing through it and realizing that um the only real way to answer and believe in Hashem and um, find fulfillment in life is through the Tanya and Chassidus, and he um, doesn't join the Tanya class, but Ali Melech actually teaches him privately, and through that, he has like a great relationship with him, and he starts to learn how Chassidus changes a person, makes them um, a very different kind of Jew, and he ends up becoming this like, you know, famous speaker who reaches out to people and helps them to change their lives. Um, and the last one, the one who I personally feel most intriguing is Aaron. And he he's brilliant, 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 brilliant. And look, everyone in his life predicts this like future for him of, of being a spiritual leader for everybody because he's so brilliant and so knowledgeable in the Torah. And he rejects Hasidism. He, he, he so much wants to believe that what he has is enough. He never like, you know, and, you know, this is like one of the 
themes of the book is um, this myth that a lot of Jews, you know, religious and not, have about Hasidism, that it's just like, it it's doesn't, it's just newfangled, or it doesn't belong, or it's not necessary, um, or even opposition, like it's, it's wrong, it shouldn't be here, we don't need it. And he really feels like it's just not for him until he has to face the fact that on the inside, like even though his brain is so well developed by Torah, emotionally he's dry, his and very underdeveloped. He's he's following the Torah and he's keeping Jewish way of life just because his community told him, and because that's just what he's always done. And he needs to move out of that. Where he's a teenager, and you realize that how he has to be really honest with himself and to think that I might be a leader of people someday. I can't just develop my brain. I have to also develop all parts of myself. And he admits that the way that he's studying is not going to cut it. Like the way that the, the environment in which he's in, the teachers that are teaching him are not going to provide that for him. And the only way that he's going to get it is through Hasidism. And that's what ends up happening. He finally relents. He studies Hasidus and he he retains his brilliance, right? He becomes uh, um, a, like a dean of a yeshiva and he's teaching men and he's, he's you know, respected for his brilliance. But at the same time, he's also a role model for people because on the inside, he's become a very different kind of Jew. To those who are unfamiliar, can you comment on the significance of a Fabrengen. What is it? And what role does the Fabrengen play in this story? Yeah. So um, what is a Fabrengen? That's first. I'm trying to answer all these different questions in order. So a Fabrengen is um, a meeting of the souls where um, people get together, men get together or women get together um, and encourage each other to serve Hashem, to serve God um, better in an improved way. And the, the importance of it cannot be stressed enough. You know, a person, um, usually, the, excuse me, usually if a bring-in is accompanied with songs, music, um, with people singing together, which really like we, we believe in Hasidism that um, music is the expression of the soul really binds the people together and it's a place to talk openly about where uh, where the people in the group are spiritually standing. Usually there's a leader who will pick the topic and lead the discussion, but there it's not learning from a book. It's a discussion about where are we standing soul-wise, emotionally-wise in our relationship with God and in our service. And um, through the encouragement, we bless each other and we encourage each other. And it's it's a very um, supposed to be uplifting and an encouraging place, right? Like we believe that when two Jews get together, their souls can are are like we, all our souls are one, and that that meeting of the souls is really just so unifying, so encouraging and uplifting, and gives us strength in our in our path and our service. Um, it, it's so so important. It cannot be like you know said enough that. Now, a person can learn that's developing the mind and a person could you know pray and that's a very very individual thing but we need each other we need a community we need to express love to each other to know that we're not alone in our journey um you know to and we can't not to stagnate not to stagnate it, it forces us to confront issues that we might not like we might not be you know might be shoving under the rug but somebody who's already been there and has that experience can lead us and we can all encourage and uplift so um, in the story, actually, um, 
Ali Malak, the first character that I explained, he his first first um in like his first interaction, his first place he ever sees the idea of Hasidism is at a Fabrenian. He's been searching anyways, like he's been looking for where can I find this emotional component? It's like, how can I develop my relationship specifically with God, not just be learning Torah. And he chances upon, he's going, you know, just on a walk and he chances upon a, um, a shul, a synagogue where a Fabrangian is being held. And he walks and he's never seen anything like it before. He feels the warmth. He hears the songs and he feels just viscerally moved and changed and he hears the messages that the leader is telling and he's like something is happening here and I feel so moved and I can't put my finger on it I'm not even sure what this is but he's never been in such a setting you know like his teachers he says my teachers give us all kinds of speeches trying to arouse us to move us but I feel in those situations I feel either judged or told that I'm not good enough and here in this place I feel so inspired, so uplifted. And I, I wonder how that, how could that happen? What, what exactly was the ingredient that made me feel that? And his search is like, I want to just recreate that feeling. I want to be there again. And when he ultimately joins a Tanya class, very often, like he tells that how sometimes, you know, these classes actually turn into Fabrangan. It's not just learning and studying. It's also how the concepts we apply and encouraging each other to make the concepts real and relevant. And that's a Fabrangan. What is the relationship between Kabbalah and Hasidism? How does this relationship unfold in the story? So Kabbalah is actually one of four explanations of the Torah. So we know that the Torah has um, is explained on four different levels. I'll say them in, he- in uh, Hebrew and then I'll translate. So um, Pshat, Remez, Drush, and Sod. Pshat is the most simple explanation. You read the verses in the Torah and just you know, simply the way they are is the story. Sometimes there's contradictions. So we give a- an explanation that simply can erase all, you know, contradictions and resolve all the issues. Then you have a little bit of a deeper level, remez, that's a homiletical level of interpretation. Sometimes letters stand for other things and words stand for things. And the number of times we read or like uh, sometimes you can, um, a little bit of a message or a, a deeper idea. Then an even deeper level is drush, where we explain how the Torah actually teaches us practical halakha, how it teaches us Jewish law. Right. And that is a whole system for how we interpret the Torah in that way. There are 13 rules in the prayer book. We actually list them. Um, Jesus, I think it's called. And um, that's another level. And then there's an even deeper level, which is called Sod, secret. And that's synonymous with Kabbalah. So Kabbalah actually comes from the root word Kabel, which means to receive. The concepts of Kabbalah were received all the way back from you know, the first man, Adam, and these secrets, we call them secrets because generally they were only passed from one generation to the other very, very confidentially to people that um, could be trusted with them. And these ideas are what exactly who is God? How did he create the world? Um, how is the world run on a spiritual plane? Um, you know, there are spiritual worlds. What happens in them? All these different kinds of concepts, if you, if, if anybody who's listening is familiar with the idea of spherot, these are emanations, how God interacts with the world, how he expresses himself and makes us understand him. These are very esoteric ideas. And the Kabbalah 
transmits them. Um, the first time ever that these ideas were not just received and transmitted in a very, very private way was through the Zohar, Rabbi Shimon Bayochai. Um, in the era of the Mishnah, he taught these ideas orally and they were recorded in the Zohar. Not ex like not everything, but they were hinted to, a lot of them were hinted to, but some were also you know, explicit in the book. And then the next point in time when they were more, um, more like revealed in a more uh, broader way was through the Arizal. But it was still like only people that were really, really, really well versed in the Torah. You have to know everything in order to properly understand and not misinterpret. Remember, because these are, these ideas are so esoteric. We don't, as much as we say we might understand God, we never really understand him. A person has to have real humility to admit that as much as I know Kabbalah, I'm not really understanding who God is himself. I have to try. That's what Kabbalah is all about, to try to understand who God is and what he does. But there's only a little glimpse. Um, Hasidus interprets, explains, and gives meaning to the whole Torah, not just Kabbalah. But what, what Hasidus does, something very, very unique with Kabbalah. When Hasidus does explain Kabbalah or use terms from Kabbalah to understand the, to understand the Torah better, it makes these ideas from Kabbalah much more relatable. Um, it's, like I said, very, very easy to misinterpret and misunderstand the Kabbalah. And because these ideas in our day and age are so, so available and widespread, it's so easy to misunderstand them. But by studying them through the study of Hasidism, Hasidism it's, um, there's much, much less of a chance that a person will be um, you know, misinterpreting or misunderstanding them. And through understanding God in such a unique, special way, we'll also practically make him a different person not just remain you know oh this is how god is some interesting like abstract concept about god i don't answer the question properly but that was excellent okay what is bitul what does this concept teach about morality and character how does this appear in the story wow <laughs> this is a real deep one okay so Bitul is often translated as self-nullification. I don't like that translation. Um, I like the word surrender better, but I'll try to give like a parable for it. So um, in Judaism, we have a concept that when a person, um, a person is in a state of spiritual impurity, this is not uncleanliness. This is, a person could be spotlessly clean, but there are different ways for a person to contract spiritual impurity. One of the steps in the process of becoming spiritually pure again is by immersing in a body of water called a mikvah. It has to be like very specific specifications and like rules. That's that when the person actually goes into that place, they come out pure. But the idea is a person is completely submerged in water. Now a person, a human being cannot survive in water, right? So when the person, when the person goes in the water for a split second, they're basically saying, I'm nothing. Like I'm giving up my existence and I'm all of my existence only depends on God. So this is what Bittal is. Bittal is on my own. I have no self. I'm not, I have no, the only thing that exists in the world, the only thing that exists is God. And the only reason I feel myself or I feel my existence is because God is allowing me to perceive that. But in a real, in reality, like my, my existence is as tenuous and um, immaterial as me being constantly submerged in water. So Bitul is like that. That's basically 
that's what that that's that statement of saying the only existence is God. And I the only definition that I have is I am a servant of God. I have no other worth. That's the only reason I'm here. I can only define myself in terms of him. So what does this have to do with morality? Everything, everything. I think, um, you know, when a person says, I'm going to do what's right and what's wrong or, or not do what's wrong based on my own perception, a person could land in who knows where. I mean, I'm going to bring a very um, extreme example. The Nazis, right? Like they were brilliant. They were very, very civilized. And they had a whole system, a way of thinking of what they thought was good and right and moral for the world. But it did not include God. And look where it took them, right? Um, the Lubavitcher Rebbe actually said this many times, that a person interprets and decides what's moral based on their own ideas. Who knows where it could lead them? But when a person says, morality is defined by God. It's not my definition of what I think is right or wrong that define, like that says what should, dictates what should be. Um, my own perceptions are not really what matters <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, and I'm giving my, my mind and my interpretations up to God's interpretation of what should be. Then true morality can happen, can take place. Yeah. To those who are unfamiliar, who was the Baal Shem Tov? Can you describe his importance in the history of Judaism and the evolution of Judaism, what role does he play in this story? Okay. So the Baal Shem Tov was a gift, a gift of God to the Jewish people. Um, at the end of the 1600, towards the middle end of the 1600s, um, the Jewish people, it, Jewish people was primarily, most of the Jewish people was living, were living in, Jewish nation was living in Europe. And by that point, over the last few centuries, they the Jewish people had literally just, they were so crushed, so, so crushed, spiritually and physically, um, through poverty, through um, the stories of, you know, constant expulsions and, um, you know, the Cossacks, right, then that happened, um, just decimation being, you know, it just, completely and um, the whole story of I don't know if people are familiar with the story of Shabbat Tzvi which was a who was a um a failed who was you know a false messiah a lot of just hopelessness the Jewish people felt at that point that they were just done <laughs> like the exile was crushing them um you know there was a lot of there that was like externally what was happening to them and then internally the split between people who were had access to Torah study and the people who didn't was just widening. People struggled, struggled to put food in their mouths and, and keep their children clothed with shelter. They didn't have the luxury of paying for their children to actually study Torah. They themselves were ignorant. And then you had these like few, few elite people who knew the Torah and they saw themselves as, you know, this is the future of the Jewish people, everyone else, what we do about them. And um, it was just a state of lack of unity and despair. And the Baal Shem Tov came at the end of the 1600s. Um, and he he was taught, tradition tells us that he was taught by actually a prophet who came from the time of the first temple and came back to him to teach him the teachings of Hasidism and tell him that now is the time the Jewish people need this. 
in order to continue, in order to survive, there's no way they'll be able to maintain the relationship with God and finish out the time of the exile without this. You need to give it to them. And the Baal Shem Tov literally went from village to village, city to city, telling the Jewish people, don't give up. And the messages of Hasidism, you know, God doesn't value because of doesn't value you because of your Torah knowledge. He values you because of your Jewish soul, and he values you because of your your true belief in him. And every little small thing that you do is going to bring the ex end of the exile closer. Um, every small action makes a difference. All these kinds of ideas, instead of there's just no I'm I'm stuck in this horrible place. Um, you know, the system of feudalism where the Jewish people could not own land, could do absolutely nothing. They were so trapped. And um, like like real authentic Judaism was, like, was very, very difficult to keep. And the Baal Tov went from place to place and just told the Jewish people, actually, even just saying a verse of songs, even just just talking to him, that's so valuable. That That is what makes you valuable in God's eyes. Just who you are, blessing him, everything, like these kinds of ideas. And the Baal Shem Tov taught, he had a circle of students that he taught these um, very, very deep, deep concepts in the Hasidism, but also sent them from place to place to encourage people, to uplift the Jewish people and literally turn the tide. Um, and these students, one of them was the Magid of Mizrich, and he he raised literally an empire, an empire of Hasidic, what we call Rebbe, Rebbe's, who each one taught Hasidist, Hasidism in their own special way, um, and taught people it's not enough to learn Torah and just be brilliant. You need to um, introduce passion and love and fear of God. You need to live differently. Every single Jew matters. All of us are in this together. These kinds of concepts, everyone has to be included. Um, and, and completely changed the face of Eastern Europe and from there to the rest of Europe. And obviously as Europe was, um, you know, decimated by the Holocaust, a lot of these, you know, the, became all these, you know, these Hasidic Rebbe's restarted their um, courts in America and Israel, all over the world. And like in America where Jewish people were struggling to keep Shabbos and keep basic Judaism, Hasidism came and told the Jewish people, one second, you know, you even in America, you could still serve God and um, gave the Jewish people once again hope to rebuild and and serve God properly. And you comment on the similarities and differences between Musar and Hasidism. What are the interconnections and differences between these different interpretations of the Jewish religion? Can you... Explain this to our listeners. How do the, how do Musar and Hasidism interact in this story? Yeah, so this is actually one idea which is very much detailed and explained in the story. Um, the Musar movement actually started after the Hasidic movement started, but not so long afterwards. Um, there was obviously, obviously a tremendous need to develop the emotional and um more subtle inner aspects of Torah that until then everyone just assumed you would get from studying Torah, but obviously people weren't studying Torah properly and we needed this extra level of or extra aspect of studying Torah to bring our relationship to a more, um, on a more emotional level. And 
integrate these ideas in a more practical, like the Torah ideas in a more practical way. So the Musar movement told, teaches that a person needs to spend time looking very, very deeply at the inner workings, the inner psyche of a person. And we can't just ignore you know, our struggles. We have to pay attention to them, examine them, pull them apart and overcome them. So the Musar movement heavily um, focuses on the negative qualities of the person we all have, right? And on the process by which we clean those up, right? And then we become better people by cleaning them up. So that's the Musar movement. And um, it tries to motivate a person, like, you know, by removing those ducky parts of ourselves, we could get to a better place. Hasidism acknowledges that we all have these struggles, we all have these negative places, but instead of focusing on them, says they exist, but the more, like the parable in the stories bring, brings out, that the more a person uh, fights with somebody who's dirty, they themselves become dirty, right? So instead of getting into the, all that muck and guck, it's better, it's more, it's more um, productive to strengthen the good and holy and beautiful parts of ourselves so that the automatically the yuckier parts get cleansed and um citizen focuses on the inherent godliness and and goodness and beauty of the jewish soul and the natural qualities that are good that we all have and by strengthening those we will automatically become stronger and better people um and in the story, like the ideas of Musa are actually brought up and the contrast as these yeshiva students contrast, oh, I've heard ideas of Musa, but um, never actually brought me to that place of real light and joy that Hasidism brings me to and um, ended up choosing, choosing it's not a better or worse, but especially in our day and age, I wouldn't say like a oh, person should not learn Musa. Some people are drawn to that. That's what they, you know, they're they're they feel fulfilled by that. But that does not negate the importance and necessity of learning Hasidism. In addition, can you tell us about the town of Kfar Chabad in Israel? Where is it located within Israel? Can you describe its origins, evolution, and history? How does it help us understand the context and setting of this story? Okay, it's an interesting question because I actually studied there. <laughs> That's where I was. For three years in Israel. So um, Kfar Chabad is along the eastern coast, pretty close to the eastern coast, right near the airport, like near Lud, where the um, Ben-Gurion airport is. I Actually, in the dorm, we used to every all time, day and night, we hear the airplanes going up and down. You could see them taking off. Um, Kfar Chabad started off as a very, very small, small community. Um, it, was, it was started off by, um, it was started in the early 1900s, I believe. Um, by the most recent, you know, by the by the by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who sent emissaries there to start a Chabad community in Israel. So, at that time, there was a lot of people were leaving, you know, Europe and making Aliyah. There was a, this, a lot of Jewish people coming there, and Chabad community also wanted to have a Chabad presence. So they started this Kfar Chabad, literally means village of Chabad, um, there in Israel. They started a yeshiva there in that place. Um, so that's, and it started off like a tiny, literally like chickens running in the road and sheep. And um, that that's what Kfar Chabad um, originally was. It's exploded. It's, but it's really, it's a, it's a, it's a town. It's exclusively um, Chabad, Chabad community. Um, the yeshiva that's there, 
was there since it was like the yeshiva that's there called Tom Chetamimim. It's a branch of the Chabad yeshiva movement. And there was there from the very, very beginning. And actually around the time of the Chevron massacre, there were a lot of um, other you know, Arab riots that were happening throughout the land, right? So throughout Israel, and um, they actually also attacked in the Kfar Chabad Yeshiva there, and um, there were there were students that were killed. It was just devastating. The, the community wanted to give up, and the Baba Chavi very much encouraged them. That when things like this happen, we have to try even harder to grow. We have to try even harder to, um, you know, to build. If they're trying to destroy, we have to build. Um, the city is flourishing. There is not just one, but a number of schools there, many, many schools and um, synagogues. Full. It's a it's a beautiful, beautiful place. It's really like a source of Chabad energy for the world. It's um, what that place has produced as far as Chabad talent and um, it's a treasure. It's a treasure. Um, one really, really special place, one really special school that the Rebbe started actually in Kfar Chabad. It's called... Um, it was actually a, a place where if a student didn't want to study Torah all day long, there should be a place for students to go and study Torah part-time and also learn a trade. We thought that was very, very important. That's another very important um, institution over there. Um, in the story, these three students, the main characters, are all in different schools in Israel. And Ali Melach, um, you know, he's learning more and more about Chabad and Chassidism, and he wants to know like, what does it look like to actually live it? I, I, you know, I'm learning these concepts and I want to integrate them into my life, but I want to see what it looks like when someone actually does it. And he visits Kfar Chabad, the city in, in Israel, this little, excuse me, a town in Israel. He visits the school to see what does it look like to be a yeshiva student and live Hasidic ideas. And again, that's the main idea of Hasidism is how to live differently. It's not just um, a cerebral kind of, and the exercise so um his visit really transforms him because now he sees how living these ideas makes you so different um so he, yeah that's part of the story of visiting, visiting Kfar Chabad. what does the story teach us about prayer what can the story i wish <laughs> if you read the story <laughs> as much as i could express it the story expresses it even better but um ex as explained so ali melech finds that his primary way of developing his relationship with God is through prayer. And um, in Hasidus, prayer is very, very emphasized. Um, and it's like we have in Hasidus, there's a very, very clear set of directives, how we go about praying. You know, we have all kinds of rules, halacha, like, you know, in Jewish law about how prayer should happen. But this, like the emotional component about it is not so spelled out. Like what should internally be happening? We know very, like, you know, it says in the Gemara that to like prayer is a service of the heart. So very much we know that it's about our intention and our thoughts, but it really wasn't until the time of Chassidus that it was so, so clearly delineated. What should be happening inside? How does a person prepare himself spiritually and emotionally for prayer? You know, a person wants to make a good friend, they have to talk to them. A person wants to have a good relationship with God, it's to talk to him. It comes before study. It comes before everything else is our relationship. Otherwise, why would a person do anything if they have no relationship? So the relationship is what fuels all the rest of the way of life. And um, 
this piece of prayer is really what gives Ali Melach his real fulfillment. He's trying to develop his relationship with God and he is learning all the ideas in Tanya. He's learning so many ideas in Chassidus. But once his teacher shows him the process, how prayer really happens through the lens of Chassidus, um, completely changes for him how he learns and how he, how he lives. You've alluded to Benzion, Eli, Melech, and Aharon. How do they evolve over the course of the story? Where do they end up at the end of the story? How do their character virtues and attributes and personality traits contribute to the ways they end up by the end of the story? So Ali Melech and Aaron actually start off, at, like all three boys, excuse me, Ali Melech, Aaron, and Ben Zion are all in the exact same yeshiva together in the beginning of the story. Um, Aaron tries to develop a relationship with Ali Melech because he really respects his search for truth and is very intrigued by it. Like he doesn't feel the same search, but he respects Ali Melech so much for his honesty, like his authenticity. And the relationship is purely one of, I want to understand where you're coming from, Ali Melech. Like, please introduce me to your thought and what you're experiencing. Ali Melech feels that this yeshiva where he is studying with Aaron and Ben Sion is not the place for him. He needs a place that will allow him to develop not just intellectually, but also emotionally and spiritually. And he moves on. Now, throughout the book, Ali Melech continues to interact at different times with um, Ben Sion and um, Aaron, mostly Aaron. He like Aaron continues to be very intrigued by Ali Melech's journey, but once he realizes that Ali Melech is insistent, he's like you know committed completely to becoming a Chabad Chassid and living that way of life. Aaron cuts off the relationship. He can't understand that. He can't relate to it, and it's just too difficult for him to stomach. But Ben Sion never let's go like he he wants to keep on following that he's like if elimelech has found truth and he's found satisfaction in life he's gotten to a good place i'm going to follow up with that and he goes out and searches seeks out elimelech to gain guidance he actually follows up with elimelech's teacher and said you know if elimelech is learning from this teacher maybe i have something i could learn from him too and reignites that relationship and then um Ali Melech and he and Ali Melech learn Tanya together, and that really transforms Ben Sion. He realizes that he too, he could stay in the same yeshiva and he can still run it, but he needs the study of Chasidis in order to have real healthy belief in God. Aaron takes longer. He's very much because he's so so intellectual, he never feels that really feels that need to develop himself emotionally. He doesn't like I'm doing what I'm supposed to, why would I be spiritually lacking? And um, resists, resists this relationship that he has with, originally had with Ali Melech. And now Ben Sion, he feels that Ben Sion is fought because he's following Ali Melech is really growing apart from him until he becomes really, really honest with himself. And he realizes that he looks at Ali Melech and Ben Sion and sees how they're growing and thriving and they're experience of Judaism is so authentic compared to what he's living. And he finally, finally admits, I need to also learn Hasidism. At the end, um, they actually all three become Chabad Hasidim. And each of them contributes to the Chabad Hasidic community in a different way. 
based on their own personal talents and strengths. But the end of the story is actually, we talked about a Fabrengen, right? They all meet at a Fabrengen, encouraging each other and talking about how much their lives have changed and become so much better and richer um, and more meaningful because of the way that Chassid has changed their lives. What is the Chabad Lubavitch Hasidic movement? We've alluded to it very often. What is distinctive about it relative to other streams of Judaism? What is unique about Chabad Lubavitch vis-a-vis other Hasidic communities in the Jewish world? Can you share some aspects of Chabad to our listeners who might not have the same degree of intimacy that others may have? Yeah. So, excuse me. like I explained before, so Chassidus was first uh, first revealed through the Baal Shem Tov, and his main disciple was the Magad of Mizrich, who continued to spread the ideas of Chassidut. And the ideas of Chassidus are very, very deep and very, very intellectual. Um, but as they were spread to the masses, a lot of times this intellectual these intellectual ideas were not able to be transmitted, right? There was always a select group of people that, like the leaders, that knew very, very, very deep, deep Hasidic ideas, and those led them to instruct and guide their communities in the proper way. A lot of times these ideas weren't necessarily given over directly. One of the Magid students was Rabbi uh, Schneer Zalman of Liadi, and he was the one who started the Chabad movement. Chabad is actually an acronym for three words. It's it's a word um, that's made of three, written by three Hebrew letters: Chet, Bet, Dalid. The Chet stands for Chachma, wisdom. The Bet stands for Bina, which is understanding, breadth of understanding, depth of understanding, and then Daat, knowledge, connecting intellectual to the emotional and the the excuse me the uh, we call him the alter rabbi the first rabbi of the chabad movement he was the one who wrote the tanya and he said his main idea was that the mind controls the heart it's through our understanding of god through understanding of chasidis that we feel differently and experience an emotional relationship right so um the, and his disciples all continued this idea and taught extremely deep ideas in Hasidus. And all the followers were all taught this without, like there was no difference whether you were very learned or not very learned, whatever your background was. Deep, deep ideas in Hasidus were all taught and everyone was encouraged to understand at whatever level they could ideas in Hasidus because the ideas in the mind, wherever you were holding, were going to impact you on an emotional level. Now, other Hasidic groups, the leaders might have known, like for sure knew, very, very deep ideas in Hasidus, but those were not necessarily taught and spread to the masses. And there are also, like, maybe like the first Rabbi had one book that he wrote, and that was passed down through all the generations. In the Chabad movement, every single leader throughout the generations was extremely prolific, like just dozens and dozens, hundreds of books of knowledge of Hasidus was spread. It was primarily, it was really uniquely and only through the Chabad movement that the ideas of Hasidus were like created as like a, a literal, an intellectual system, a way of studying, a way of learning, understanding that impacted us, that should impact the person on an emotional level. So 
the Chabad movement became the Lubavitch movement when the third Rebbe in the dynasty moved to the city of Lubavitch. It was actually a city in, no, in Russia. Um, it actually means Lubavitch means in, in Russia means city of love, brotherly love. So that's where the Chabad Lubavitch movement, you know, became central. It was moving from different, like the, the first Rebbe, like I said, the Rishneir Zalman, he lived in Liadi, right? Rishneir Zalman of Liadi. But from there, moved different places and eventually came to Lubavitch. Now, um, and each Rebbe, each leader in each generation taught more and more and more and just expounded more and more. The ideas of Chassidus revealed more and more ideas, concepts that were supposed to impact the listener in a, an emotional way. Um, and this system is very, very unique. And even to this day, you have many ideas or values of chassidus, like prince uh, values, the, the value of joy, the value of prayer, the value of um, community and, and the, the leadership of a rebbe. All these things you see across chassidus. But the concept that our service, our emotional connection to God has to be led by the emotion, by, excuse me, by the intellectual um, development and understanding, right? Chassidus, that is unique to Chabad. Um, and it that persists to this day. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, how have you been spending your time since completing this translation? Where has your attention been going? Uh, can you share with us what you've been up to since this project has been behind you? That's such an interesting, <laughs> interesting question because... Um, I've been on a very deep, pro deep um, process journey of like inner spiritual growth um, through a course that I started taking called Birth Story Medicine. Um, actually, have a background a little bit as a doula, um, which is a, like a labor coach supporting women through childbirth. And by really by divine providence, I came across a course that um, the purpose of it is to help women um, process negative birth stories that they experience and help them bring resolution and healing from the trauma. And I actually find that many, many ideas, like the premise of this system is so synonymous with ideas in Hasidus. I actually, throughout the past few months, I listened to some different Torah classes, Hasidic Torah classes, and I'm just shocked by how these very same ideas that you know, that I'm taking in this course are like straight out in Hasidus that, um, you know, we need to, in order, excuse me, the idea that in order to properly, like to honestly interact with like the world and really have a real true um, uh, interpretation of reality, we need to go inward. And like, how are we viewing ourselves? How are we viewing, viewing our yeah, that's really what it is. How we're viewing ourselves is really going to color our interpretation of reality. And that inner work um, is what brings a person to resolution and peace in all areas of their life. I mean, a, a woman, a woman completely transforms through childbirth. And even that is a very, like, you know, Hasidus has a lot to say about that. But I feel like offering this kind of modality to this option of healing to Jewish women um, which I have never met anybody else. I, I don't think it exists anywhere, but is very transformative. Women a lot of times resist that and talk. We mentioned Bitul about um, surrender. 
And this concept, like a lot, really is what brings a woman is brought to that through childbirth, real surrender. And many people resist that. You know, we all have egos and um, it's hard. It's hard to give up our image of who we are and say, well, actually, I'm not any of those things. I'm just a tool. I'm a tool in God's hands. And um, that's what brings real, real inner peace. So helping women come to that place, even bringing myself to that place is very transformative and empowering. So I hope that um, the ideas in the story and these kinds of messages, um, I think should really bring, bring healing to the whole world. And um, the ultimate, he- per- we, we, when each of us brings their, like, you know, accomplishes their own personal healing, that's what brings universal healing and with the ultimate coming of Mashiach. For all mankind. Amazing. You are an extraordinary person. Thank you. Just trying to do my piece to make the world a little more beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for your erudition and your eloquence in your very generous responses throughout this dialogue and interview. And thank you for everything you sacrificed to make this book available to readers. My pleasure. Thank you so, so much for giving this opportunity. I'm so glad because I feel like I really, I did this project just as a gift. Like I wanted people to be able to have this treasure. And if even one person is able to be helped by this talk that you've so generously um, hosted, it will definitely be worth it. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to further share. Um, And I hope people find more purpose and more joy, more meaning it that it was, was my honor it. yeah it was, was my honor i look up to you very much thank you <laughs> thank you so much to to our listeners i am your host on the new books and jewish studies podcast ari barbalat today i have been privileged to be in dialogue with Sprinza goldberg she is the translator into english of the following book in search of truth three yeshiva students on a spiritual journey first published by Rabbi Menachem Brod. It has been published by BSD Publishers 2022. Sprinza is a teacher at Base Homish High School for Girls in Toronto. Thank you.